0: We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins.
1: Thanks, Christine. So this is the time of year when people make New Year's resolutions. Hands up who's made a New Year's resolution so far? There's not very many of you, about three. Hands up who has made a New Year's resolution so far? Okay, oh, a bit more, okay, how many of who's broken those New Year resolutions by now? Yeah, okay, most of us have. Um, people decide they're gonna do things like giving up alcohol, people decide they're gonna quit smoking, people decide they're gonna uh, start going to the gym more often, they're gonna start saving money, they're gonna plan a holiday, they're gonna do all sorts of different things. Uh, If you're comfortable, why not just turn to somebody uh, next to you and tell them either the New Year's resolution that you have made or one thing that you would like to do in the next 12 months. Go. Go. Okay, okay, that's a great buzz of conversation, people coming up with all sorts of ideas, all sorts of things they want to do. Very simple question. How will you know whether you have achieved your goal? How will you know by the end of the 12 months whether you have done what you have just said you want to do? Now, if it's something physical, like, I don't know, losing weight, uh, then there are things called scales. Scales. And they will tell you uh, whether you have lost weight or not. In our house, for some reason, the scales are always broken, uh, usually after I've stood on them. Um, but there are sort of ways in which you can measure stuff. Physically, people now will, will have uh, devices around their wrists, whether it's an Apple Watch or, or a Fitbit, and they measure how many steps... Uh, They do so. um, So Finian Talbot, who was eight today, he 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 got a Fitbit for his birthday and was 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 comparing notes with my wife Kathy uh, at six o'clock this evening as to who had done most steps. And to Kathy's thrill and joy and triumph, he was able to say that she had done, I think it was ten and a half thousand steps, and he had done just. just under 10,500 steps, at which point Finian ran and started going up and down the stairs just so he could say that he had got more steps than Cathy. Now, isn't it strange that people will do that? People will start going up and down stairs, not because they want to go anywhere, but just because, if you think about this, how stupid is this that people just go up and down stairs because they want more numbers on their device, on their wrist? It's bonkers. I know it's good for you physically, but just think about it. You're going up and down stairs going nowhere. It's mad. So you know when you have achieved your goal. Now, if you take it out of the physical realm and put it in the spiritual realm, how do you know that you are growing spiritually? That's very, very difficult to measure. And maybe some of the external things that we think of aren't actually accurate. So say, maybe you think, well, it's how well I know the Bible, or how long my prayers are, or how long I can preach for, or how long I can listen to a sermon and stay awake. Maybe it's something like how many times I come to church, or how many times I've been to Soul Survivor, or how many times I've been to PowerPoint, or how many times I come to the youth group, or how many times I go to the school SU, or how many times I go to the university CU, and we look at all these external things. But how do you measure what's going on inside? How do you measure real spiritual health? Well, that's what we want to do over the next few weeks in this sermon series. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at a whole range of different subjects. We're going to look at our relational health. We're going to look at mental health. We're going to look at money. We're going to look at our finances. We're going to look at our prayer life. We're going to look at our rhythm of life. We're going to look at how we keep the Sabbath, whether that's a Sunday or whether it's another day. We're going to look at a whole range of different areas of life because God is interested in life. God is not just interested in our spiritual lives. See, what we do is, we have this part of life that's called the spiritual bit. That's when we pray, read the Bible, when we sing worship songs, listen to worship music, go to see you, go to PowerPoint, go to Soul Survivor, and then there's the rest of life, all this other stuff that we do. And somehow in our way of thinking over the last 30, 40, 50 years, we've come to the idea that somehow God is concerned with this bit, but he's not concerned with this bit but the reality is that god doesn't see it as two separate bits he just sees it as life and he is as concerned about our studies about our finances as he is about our prayer life or our knowledge of the bible so that's what we're going to do over these next few weeks looking at different subjects quite specifically from different angles and exploring it together I was struck just before Christmas by some of the prayers that the Apostle Paul prays for the different churches that he writes to in the New Testament, places like Ephesus and Corinth and Thessalonica and the one we have this evening, Colossae. And it's quite striking that he, he follows the same sort of formula in the ancient world that when you write a letter to somebody, you, you, you used to start the letter by giving thanks And Paul does that. He gives thanks for each particular group of people that he's writing to. He then reminds them and tells them who they are in Christ, what Jesus has done for them. But then he tells them how he's praying for them. And he prays different things for different groups of people. So, for example, in Ephesus, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 17, he says this. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of revelation so that you may know him better. So he's praying for the church in Ephesus that they might know God better. That's a fantastic verse for some of us to take perhaps this year and say at the end of this year, at the end of 2018, I want to know God better better I want my relationship with God to be closer I want it to be more intimate I want to know what God wants me to do I want to know the plan that that Lee was talking about that he has for me every single day I want to discern what it is God wants me to do with my life Paul says I'm praying for you Ephesian Christians so that you may know God better To the church in Philippi, he prays something slightly different. In Philippians 1 and verse 9, he says this, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He said, I'm praying for you, Christians in Philippi, and I'm praying that your love might abound more and more, that your love for God and your love for people might grow and grow and grow so that you might be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for when Jesus comes again. In Thessalonica, again, it's similar. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 12, he says, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other. He's saying, Christians in Thessalonica, I want you to be known... For your love. Wouldn't it be amazing if P's and G's became known for our love? That when people thought about P's and G's, they thought, Ah, P's and G's, that's a church. If there's one word that I would would associate with P's and G's church, it's the place and it's the word love. Wouldn't that be amazing if that became our reputation in 2018? That when people thought in Edinburgh of P's and G's church they would think of a place of love. In the verse that Christine read for us from Colossians chapter 1, Paul says something slightly different. He says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. And this is the key bit. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. That's the plan that God has for Lee's life, and for my life, and for your life, every single day. That when we wake up in the morning, when we go to school, college, university, work, whatever it is that we do, God wants us to live lives that are worthy of Him, and please Him in every way, that bear fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. That was Paul's prayer for this church in Colossae, which is now found in the middle of what we call Turkey. But how does that happen? And why does Paul pray this particular thing and use one particular image? He talks about the Christians in Colossae bearing fruit in every good work. There's one concept that he kept, keeps on coming back to in this letter in Colossians, and it's the word or concept, fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. Now, it's not an image that we find particularly helpful because we live in the industrial West. We live in a world where if we want something, we go to a shop and we buy it. We don't live in an agricultural society. There are parts of the world that are still like that, Sub-Saharan Africa, for example, and there, the imagery of fruitfulness would be as as rich as it was for the people who were listening in the first century, hearing Paul use this particular imagery. Fruitfulness was associated with fertility and was associated with productivity. It meant that you had enough food in order to be able to live. So if you were fruitful, if the land that you owned was fruitful... Then it produced enough food for you to live, for you to survive, and maybe a little extra for you to sell. So that you weren't just surviving, but you then started to thrive. And time and time again, every successive empire that came about in the ancient world, whether it was Persia or whether it was Egypt or whether it was Babylon or whether it was Greece or even if it was Israel itself and then finally Rome, they said, we will make your lives fruitful. We will ensure that your lives are fruitful, that you're not just surviving but actually you're thriving and we'll do that by the power of our military. And we'll do that by making people keep the law and obey the law. And we'll subdue them violently. And if you come under our wings, if you come under the Roman Empire, then you will be fruitful. You will live a productive life. And the people that Paul was writing to in Colossae would have been surrounded in all the architecture around them by this image of fruitfulness by this image of protection, by this image of provision. Live under our rule. Live under our control. Come under our wings. Live under the protection of the Roman army, and we will look after you, and you will be protected, and you will be productive, and you will be fruitful. We don't go to shops because they're fruitful. We go to shops because they're cheap. We don't walk around Waitrose or Lidl or Tesco's or Asda or Morrisons and go, I'm going to go to that supermarket because it's a fruitful supermarket. We don't use that imagery. But that imagery was very, very relevant for the people that Paul was writing to. Because they were surrounded by a culture and they were surrounded by a political system that said, we will make you fruitful. Every political regime or structure has its own particular catchphrase. Some of us, in the general election uh, a few months ago, we're, were getting we're a bit tired of every time we saw Theresa May uh, in a press conference or being interviewed, she always uttered three words: "stable and secure," "stable and secure," "stable and secure." Before that. Twenty years ago, Tony Blair, when he became prime minister with New Labour, he went on and on and on about education, education, education. Those were his three priorities. Barack Obama, when he was running for president in 2008, had a particular slogan. And the particular slogan that he used again and again and again was, yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And thousands, crowds of thousands of people would shout those words back. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And whatever you may think about Trump, his slogan, making America great again, was incredibly successful. People resonated with it. People thought, yeah, he can do it. Why? I don't know. But they thought he can do it. And that's why they voted for him. Now, the political soundbite, if you like, or the political motif, or the political message of every successive empire Egypt, Persia, Babylon, Greece, and now Rome was one of fruitfulness. We will make you fruitful. And at the same time, Paul uses a word that we think is a particularly Christian word to describe what is happening. He talks about this gospel bearing fruit. In in Colossians chapter 1, and I think it's verse, is it 6 or 7, he talks about the gospel of Jesus Christ bearing fruit around the world. And he's deliberately choosing to use that word gospel because the word gospel in the ancient world had a particular connotation. We think of it as Christian. It wasn't particularly Christian. Gospel was an announcement by the emperor gospel was an announcement of a military victory so you would have the gospel of Julius Caesar's battle at this victory at this particular battle or the gospel of the emperor Tiberius who would win this particular battle in this particular war what Paul is saying here is that you've heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ that is bearing fruit across the world it's a deliberate use of terms that the people that Paul was writing to would have been very, very familiar with. But one that, if we're honest, we don't fully get the resonance of what Paul is saying. And what Paul is saying is, I want your lies to bear fruit. Not in terms of productivity, but in terms of being influential on the people around you. So that when they see your life, They see something different that isn't governed by military might or economic prosperity. That was the Roman and the Greek and the Egyptian and the Babylonian and the Persian model. Paul says, I want your lives to be characterized by something else. I want your lives to be characterized by showing people that you don't live under the rule of Rome, that's not your primary allegiance. Your primary allegiance is to a kingdom, not an empire. 2,000 years before Star Wars, the Apostle Paul was making this contrast. You do not live under the empire. You live under the kingdom. You do not live under Caesar. You live under Christ. You do not live according to the political philosophy of Rome. You live under the manifesto, if you like, of the Sermon on the Mount, where those who are last will be first, where those who mourn will be comforted, where the orphan and the widow and the alien and the stranger, they're given priority, they're looked after, they're cared for. And yes, it involved the forgiveness of sins. Yes, it involved people's eternal destiny. But it also spoke of a a society and a culture where economics was different and social justice was different. And social change and transformation came about as individuals were changed one by one. And the church started to change the known world in Israel, in Palestine, in Rome and in Greece. And Christians started to live qualitatively different lives. I want you to be fruitful, Paul says. I'm praying for you to be fruitful, to live lives that please God in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. So some simple questions for you and for me at the start of 2018. Four simple questions. A spiritual health assessment, if you like, that I want to leave you with this evening. Very simply, are the lives that you and I are living, are they worthy of the Lord? Maybe you want to take a screenshot of that screen, or maybe we'll, we'll tweet it out this week. Because they're questions that on one level seem very simple, but actually they're very profound. Is the life that you are living worthy of the Lord? Is the life that you and I are living, does it please God in every way? Does your life and my life bear fruit in every good work? Are we growing in our knowledge of God? You see, these are real indicators of spiritual health. These are real indicators of spiritual growth whether we're getting to know God better, whether we're bearing fruit in our lives, whether we're pleasing God in every way, and whether the lives that we're living every day, every week, are worthy of God. Now, we do things in church to enable us to do and live those lives. But God is not primarily interested in what we do in this building. Yesterday, I was privileged to take a Thanksgiving service for the life of Ethel Houston. Ethel was a member of this church for over 30 years and died in her mid-90s. And she led an amazing life. She was one of the code breakers at Bletchley Park during the Second World War. She was one of the first two women to be a senior partner in a legal firm in Scotland ever. She never grew tired of travel or of people. About 10 years ago, when she was in her mid-80s, I remember talking to her and saying, "Um, how are you going, Ethel? And she said, well, you won't be seeing me for a few weeks, Dave. And I said, oh, really, are you going on a trip? She said, I'm going to start in Thailand and then go through China. She was about 84, 85 at this stage of life. And what was very striking yesterday in her Thanksgiving service is person after person after person spoke was that what they remembered was her integrity. What they remembered was her generosity. What they remembered was her hospitality. What they remembered was her kindness. What they remembered was her intelligence. They didn't remember how she used to come to church every Sunday. They didn't speak about the fact that she sat where Catherine's sitting now in that seat every week at the nine o'clock service faithfully every Sunday the same seat that uncannily her brother Jim sat in yesterday during the Thanksgiving service they didn't speak about how she used to read the Bible how she would know the Bible how she would pray how she would read different books of theology how she was open to different points of view how she wanted constantly even in her 80s even in her 90s to learn And read and listen what they saw was the stuff that was lived out but it was only made possible because of what was going on in ethel's inner life you see you can only live a life worthy of the lord you can only please him in every way you can only bear fruit in every good work if you're growing in your knowledge of god And Ethel was somebody who decade by decade, year by year, put the hard miles in. She read her Bible. She prayed. She came to church faithfully. Now, these things of themselves are not measures of spiritual growth. The more you come to church, it doesn't mean that you're a better Christian. I like you more. (laughs) God loves you more. No, he doesn't. Um, But actually what God is far more concerned about is how you live your life Monday to Saturday. About the life that you live as a Christian in your school or at college or university or in your office with your work colleagues, with your neighbors, with your family perhaps who aren't Christians. How you use the money that God has given to you. How you use the time that God has given to you. Whether the fruit of the Spirit, the character of Jesus, love, joy, patience, peace, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, etc., is being reproduced in your life over time. These questions are not meant to induce guilt. They're not meant to induce a sense of failure in you. Because all of us are going to have to go, nope, 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 maybe. (laughs) And I'm paid to pray. But those are my answers to those questions. It's not about guilt. It's not about putting heavy burdens on ourselves. But it's about an aspiration that we can attain with God's help. That as his life lives in us, as his spirit lives in us, then we can start to live those lives worthy of the lord full of failure as lee mentioned that people are not looking for perfect christians remember someone saying you know what a model christian is it's a miniature replica of the real thing that's what a model is people aren't looking for model christians they're looking for authentic christians people who are just themselves so when people look at your life when people look at my life Are they seeing people who are growing in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control? Are we becoming more like Jesus? Are we bearing fruit in every good work? And are we growing in our knowledge of God? The stuff that we do in church is to enable us to live those lives worthy of the Lord. A couple of years ago, I heard a speaker give an example um, using weights, and he says there's all the difference between somebody who is a bodybuilder and somebody who is a weightlifter. Both of them use weights. I obviously don't. (laughs) But he said a bodybuilder will lift weights in order for one purpose only. They're lifting weights in order to make themselves look really good. To build themselves up. Just so that other people will look at them. Not look at the weights primarily, but just look at them. That's a bodybuilder. A weightlifter will lift exactly the same weights. But with a very different purpose. They're lifting weights for one purpose only. In order to help them lift more weights. What we do in church, whether we're worshipping God, reading our Bible, praying, it's not about becoming a bodybuilder, making us look good. It isn't about us. But it's to enable us to know more of God, to experience more of God, and to live out more of God in our lives every single day. That was Paul's prayer for the church at Colossae. And that, I think, is probably... A prayer that's worth us praying at the start of 2018.